The Arts Explanatory Comma Podcast, where art meets the real world and both sides get a better understanding of the whole picture. This podcast may contain strong language and listener discretion is advised. You know, I post things and I totally forget that there's a lot of people looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot Honestly, of people. And I just, I, in my mind, I have a hundred followers, and I know them all, right? Yeah. That's that's the way I I kind of post. So, um, yeah. I, I like to integrate some personal things with you know, along with some art curation, just so people can have a face and a voice with what's going on, yeah. and see who's behind it. But I, I totally forget stuff like that. Yeah, that's that is true. <laughs> Thank you, Raquel, for um, well, that, was it Raquel pulled that out or was it you, Mark? Oh, that was me. It because it's that was you that. Well, thank you. It sticks out to me because my nephew actually um, he sings um, and he sings op- opera, gospel, and um, jazz. And um, yeah, he's gospel's always home. He's I'm a, a I'm a son. <laughs> I'm a son of a pastor, so I grew up um, singing, and like a voice came like in my late teens, and my brother and I both just got, became musically gifted and um, sang, and he, he sings and plays the piano, so I would always sing, and he would always play for me, so even to this day, we're kind of that duo, yeah. so when, we, cool. when we're, I'm in retirement, I haven't done much, <laughs> but uh, if you pull me out, I can do a all right well um let me jump into this intro and then we can get into the 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 real meat of the conversation um i like to do an intro for everybody um to kind of let people know who we're talking to a little bit before we really jump in um so let me go ahead and do that um today we have a very very special guest not that you know our other guests weren't special um but i feel like Today, I'm about to have the art history class that I always wanted to have in college. Oh, wow. No pressure. No pressure at all. Thanks. That I never got a chance to, to have. And I think since the bulk of our listeners are actually, um, you know, probably in the, within the same age range and, you know, up on Instagram and things like that, most of our listeners might be your followers. Uh, <laughs> okay, that would be amazing. I hope so. I love <laughs> so followers. With, I always say I don't have uh, followers. I have friends. Well, there you go. You've got <laughs> you got a good number of friends. Uh, <laughs> but um, our guest today is an uh, art historian. He is also a art curator. He is also just a wealth of knowledge. And if you have seen the page Legacy Brothers, you know that his knowledge and interest both run deep. And you are also probably about to be surprised that I've learned just today how to pronounce uh, uh, the, the most confusing word that is on his Legacy Brothers page. He is an art cognoscenti. Yes, yes. <laughs> that sounds so good when you say Because I said it wrong the first time. <laughs> oh, you got it, you got it. But yeah. because we have tons of questions for him on everything that he does, um, including his writing, 
Um, and we might have a little bit of time to ask about the singing again. Uh, <laughs> but we, Raquel and I would like to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Danny Dunson. Welcome, yes. Danny. Welcome, Thank welcome, you. welcome. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. It's really <laughs> speaking with both of you. This, the honor is truly mine, really, just to be asked. To I'm going to admit I'm over here fangirling because I stand for your Legacy Brothers page, as well as just my, gr- my granddaddy's closet. I'm like, oh, this is the coolest oh. shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so when Mark said, hey, we're going to talk to Danny, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to be ready. <laughs> oh, man, that, no, that makes me so happy. Yeah. That Even when you mentioned my granddaddy's closet, I totally, like, I, I post to that almost every day, but I forget it's mine. I don't know where my, my head is half the time. Um I just feel like I'm posting these personal posts because I'm very organic about what I put up. So I'm just acting like I'm posting a selfie, but no, it's a black and white photo from 1915. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think for myself, um, you know, I got a little fanboy situation going on as well because, you know, the things that you post on Legacy Brothers, like the knowledge is so deep in art history and current art as well, contemporary art as well. And it spans such a vast period of time that, you know, when you think about it, when you think about typical art historians, they usually stay to a time period for the most part, right? Like your knowledge and your interests are spanning this time period, spanning these genres. And the thing that they have in common is blackness, which is dope as shit. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. You know... (laughs) You know, with, I have to say with art historians, every art historian has a specialty. They specialize Absolutely. in a certain area. And what Instagram allows me to do is, again, just completely fan out on so many different types of art that I don't necessarily have the time or the acute interest to specialize in. But I can pay homage to it. I can learn a little bit about it and I can send it out there. So that's one thing I'm really grateful uh, to Instagram for because it gives you that that, that flexibility. There are some yeah. things I really do concentrate on, but on my Instagram, I, I, even the Instagram is a concentration. But we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. let's let's dive right in, Danny. Absolutely. Can you tell us what's your earliest memory of your connection to art? Uh man. So I grew up. My mother is a she. She. I, I don't want to say was, but. She's an artistic person, I'll say that. She drew and she would draw and paint and um, also do a lot of crafts. And she was a fantastic seamstress and tailor. So she would make all of our clothes. And so I was surrounded by arts and handicraft all of my life. And I was drawing at a very early age, so early that they were crayon drawings all over the walls. Um <laughs> And my father would just, he would be so angry at me. But I guess there was a level of sophistication to the the drawings on the walls that they started getting me, you know, pads of paper and easels. And I got an art, art, um, an art kit every Christmas. So, uh, that would be my Christmas gift, art supplies, and I would draw. And then, but my first recollection of actually uh, appreciating art rather than practicing art. So it starts off as a practice. And I think most art people who are in um, the arts 
come from a practice that they did, even even if it was something as a child. They did something where they were an artist once themselves. Yeah. And then it kind of spans out. So I remember my dad had a collection. My father had this. Um, he still has it. Um, my father's passed away, which is why I'm speaking in the past tense. But the collection of books is still in my parents' home. A huge library of maybe, I don't know, 3,000 books. Oh, wow. And, yeah, just bookcases all around the room. And he had a set of encyclopedias, which is something that, unfortunately, um, we don't really know about in this generation because everything is so digital, digitized and online. But, you know, I've looked up the Encyclopedia A and looked up the word art. And in it just came oil painting after oil painting. And I was fascinated. And then my father saw that I liked that. He had a book on the famous um, French painter Renoir. Um, just hanging on the book, on the bookcase next to a book by Frederick Douglass. That's how random the, uh, <laughs> the library was. So he took that down and I started looking at all of these impressionist paintings by this master. So I just loved looking at art. And then, um, probably I think by the time I got into the sixth grade, after I had weekend classes in art and I actually exhibited in one, um, art exhibition for students like of the fifth grade. I did that uh, at the local mall. And then I went to a special, almost like a conservatory for visual and performing arts for junior high. Yeah, for junior high school kids up through the 12th grade. So from sixth through the 12th grade, I was at a special school that went from 8 a.m. till 4.30. So you had to get in there early. And, you know, we had extra, you know, we stayed an hour and a half after uh classes and i was a visual arts major and um so i was trying to become an artist i was really interested in fashion design i was always drawing clothes on the walls even as early as five or six or four i was i would look at a movie and i would draw something on the walls which was terrible because a lot of it didn't come (laughs) off (laughs) but uh, that's my earliest recollection. Like, it's just always been there. Very artistic fam- uh, family. My father was into music um, as a hobby, and then my mother was into arts and crafts as a hobby. So it literally trickled down to me at a very early age. Okay. So when did you take an interest in writing? Was it always about, did you start off writing about art, or did you explore other topics first? <laughs> wow. Um <laughs> So the writing came around the same time I was interested in in art. I had to do a paper, a uh, term paper on Hummingbird. <laughs> and my dad took me to the library and we pulled down every book, every reference book on these birds, on Hummingbirds. And of course they were pictorial books. So I was interested in the images. Yeah. So he- they describe what it looks like. What does it look like to you? And I would write it down. And I remember he read it and he said, man, I think we have a poet on our hands. Like, you know, it's a poetic way that you write. And I didn't take it seriously until actually much, much, much later when uh, I had left the job in the financial world. I had worked in banking for a couple of years and obviously I'm not a banker. Uh, but I was forcing myself to try to fit into a mode. And I left that job and was unemployed for about six or seven months. 
and it was definitely my choice and I was okay. So I started writing during that time and I started writing a novel and that's when things got really serious about writing. Uh, and I guess as I converged the worlds of art history and art criticism to writing, uh, my interests just kind of collided together and that's when art writing started to become a thing for me. Okay. So what made you choose to write about art and art history? Yeah. So I guess the question becomes, um, what made me get into art history specifically? Well, yeah. Uh, because to go into art history, you're going to write, you As, know, anything this dealing is true. with the, <laughs> Like, so if you're in the humanities, um, it's almost like writer is in parentheses underneath all of those. If you're studying philosophy, if you're studying history, if you're studying, I, I don't know, any of those topics, um, literature, you have to write about the literature you read. So yeah. art history came first. Art history came again in high school. So since I was a visual arts major, we had to take art history classes. And so I had a major in high school like I was in college, and then I had to take electives like I was in college, along with my core high school curriculum. It was a very rigorous uh, program at the school I went to academically. So I'm sorry, um, Dan. Danny, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off real quick. You yeah. you grew up in Chicago, correct? No, um, no. That's really that's oh man, this, these questions are just they're flying out <laughs> right at the perfect time. So let me back. I grew up in right. Gary, Indiana. Okay, Gary, Gary, Indiana. Most people will recognize as the home of Michael Jackson or the birthplace of Michael Jackson. Uh, also, great legends such as Denise Williams. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the second mayor, uh, black mayor in the nation, was elected. Uh, in the late 60s uh, in Gary, Indiana. It was a population, at least when I was growing up, of maybe 95 to 98% black people. Yeah. And those who weren't black were uh, either considering themselves Latino or mm -hmm. something other than white. Yeah. Uh, and what that city did, even though it, it had a reputation of being crime-ridden and uh, troubled at the time, and it was a city of economic life and urban decay uh, due to the concept of white flight. Once uh, Mayor Hatcher got elected, uh, the powerful minority, which were the wealthy whites of the city, which were running the city at the time, this is during the late 60s, uh, they left, they took all of their holdings, all of the businesses, all of downtown, closed down, literally. Uh, and that also ended segregation in the city. So the numbers, black people outnumbered white people, uh, in that statistic, but they didn't have the wealth. So the, the whites left the city and left this, left the black people with absolutely no resources. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the city crumbled. And this happened in a lot of places, Detroit, yeah. Cleveland, Ohio, just different places. Um, but I think Gary is like a prime example of 100% white flight. So neighborhoods that you weren't allowed to live in because you were black in the 50s and 60s, those were now becoming integrated in the late 60s and 70s. So I grew up in a neighborhood where it was pretty much set aside for all the rich uh, white doctors and attorneys of the time and businessmen. 
And that area kind of preserved itself as being a wealthy area. But when I was coming up, it was all black. Okay. Um, and still is pretty much. Um, and it's lakefront property. So um, I grew up in a city where I got to see a complete stratification of class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't grow up thinking black people were all one way. They're not monolithic. So I didn't grow up thinking black people were poor. I definitely didn't grow up thinking all black people were rich. I got to see people on every level from politics, from medicine, to being a street hustler, to being homeless, everything. So my, my view, my, my worldview at the time was, was something that I really wish a lot of people could have. Um, because I think it put me at an advantage of pride within myself. I didn't have to look to anybody else outside of what I looked like or what I was to find pride. If I wanted a doctor, there was a black one. If I wanted an attorney, our attorney was black. If I wanted the bread, the the bakery, that was owned by black people down the street. It was quite amazing. At the same time, you know, crack, cocaine, homelessness, gang wars, all of that was happening in the city at the same time. So if you wanted your children to go to a safe school, you and if you you know didn't go to a private school, I went to mostly private schools until I auditioned to get into this special school of the visual and performing arts, which was a magnet school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's when I uh, started to get really involved in it. But to, to answer the question about art history, I was taking that course in this class in this school system that demanded ex- excellence from all of us at all times, and I really loved art history. I would be the one the first one to raise my hand um, for every question the teacher would ask. And I didn't have to study. It just stuck with me. Dates stuck with me. Um, facts and art, art, artifacts and types of things just stuck in my head. And I said, man, I really like this. Anytime you get an A in something and you don't have to really study for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that's how my interest started. Now, I ran from that interest for a long time. Um, and did a lot of different other things, but yeah, that's how it, that was the very organic start of me being interested in art history. And I think it went back to my first early days of looking up the word art in the encyclopedia. Wow. That's, I mean, so just to kind of highlight a couple of things that you said, like that worldview, like the, the advantage of being in, and a lot of people unfortunately wouldn't necessarily think of being in a city that's 98% non-white yeah. <laughs> would be an advantage or a privilege, but yeah, it definitely yeah. sounds like it was because like yeah. you got to see everything that black is right outside your door that's right. <laughs> from uh, top everything. to bottom. Everything, you know, um, when I was growing up, like I said, my father was a pastor of a church, um, but when he was really young, um, before he was even pastoring, his mentor was the college roommate of Dr. Martin Luther King. So <laughs> I grew up knowing like Bernice King and the King's kids, you know, they're much, much older than me, but I met them. My mother would fry chicken for different dignitaries and people wow. would be in our house because of the connections. Yeah. Um, and this was all happening in Gary, Indiana, which at the time was considered the murder capital of the world. So yeah. I don't want to paint a picture of rainbows and butterflies of this black utopia, but I do want to paint a picture of diversity and just a chance to see 
uh, they live a life that's very different than the way the youth live their mm-hmm. life right now. If I was to get pulled over when I was 16 or 17 by a policeman, number one, he was going to be black. Number two, he was going to be from the town I was from. Yeah. And number three, the biggest thing I was afraid of is if he went to high school with my dad and knew him. Mm. <laughs> they were like, wait a minute. you Wait, what's your name? Yeah. Dunson, you grandson? Oh, man, you look, oh, I'm going to call him right now. <laughs> like that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that I lived under. Like, I was totally afraid yeah. of, um, of somebody knowing who my parents were because it was, you know, it was a small community, um, large enough. It wasn't a tiny town, but it was small enough that people knew each other mm-hmm. and your family name uh, meant everything. So yeah. I don't know if we have those types of, um, I don't think we have that type of pride right now yeah. um, nationally. And a lot of it has to do with some of the forced integration that we have to live in um, because we're trying to get opportunities that still aren't available to us. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to skip over the forced integration comment because that's going to spark a whole nother that's conversation. That's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But I feel yeah. you. I agree. Uh, but what I did want to highlight also is that, um, the reason that I asked if you did grow up in Chicago, I want the listeners to know that you are in Chicago, that that's where you live now. And Chicago is kind of the place that like, Chicago's the big city to, to Gary and all the surrounding places, right? Like it kind of funnels into Chicago. Like if you want to go do more, you go into Chicago, but also I wanted to point out the fact that like, Right now, well, for, for for quite some time, people have painted this picture that Chicago is like this desolate wasteland where all black men go to die. <laughs> and it's like Chicago has always been troubled on so many levels. That is true. That is absolutely true. But Chicago has always also been a beautiful place for culture in the black community as well. Yes. <laughs> and that's what I want like that that's what I want people to understand. But I didn't know that about Gary, Indiana, but it sounds like, you know, there was that 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 sounds like a hell of a cultured upbringing it was. <laughs> in Gary, it was Indiana that the, I didn't yeah, know existed. Only 20 minutes, I should say about 20 30 minutes you can get to Chicago. So I, when I tell Chicagoans I I'm not if they ask me where I'm from and I say, "Oh, I'm from Gary." They go, "Oh, you're from Chicago." It's literally <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's the yeah. same thing with Houston and Sugarland. Like it's, <laughs> it's it's basically the same thing, you know. We might we might throw a little shade at people from Sugarland, but you know, right, it right. is what it is. But you know, on the East Coast, like if you're not from DC, you can't say DC. If you're not from New York proper, don't say New York. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago, yeah. we kind of take the suburbs and even the Indiana suburbs, which Gary is, it's a suburb of Chicago that happens to be in Indiana. Yeah. We claim it all. And they call it the <laughs> Chicago land area. So absolutely. Yeah. But I've lived formally in the city for almost twenty years. Okay. Um so yeah. in the in the spirit of the arts explanatory comma um, yeah. idea and what we do here. Can you explain in your own words or define what art history is in your own words for the people? Yeah. Um, so I think it, it has several moving parts. Um, first, it's exactly what it says. It's the history of art. Um, and I think when we think of a history of art, we think of it in a very Western context that starts 
uh, you know, in Europe, and it takes on parts of um, uh, Egypt and the Middle East, and then it kind of skips over a large part of the world, which is the rest of Africa, what they call Sub-Saharan Africa or Lower Africa, and it, it hasn't put its place in the canon, the canon of art history being the pieces of work that are the most important. And I think things have changed a lot. So basically it studies the development of object making performance, uh, through the mo through the lens of art. And, uh, yeah. So what it is for me, I try to, I, I should also mention that the history of art doesn't just talk about the objects, but it also talks about the artists um, because it's impossible to talk about the art without the people who made it. And yeah. then you start talking about the artist's colleagues and then you start talking about the city in which the artist was in, the time in which they were around, what was happening outside of art because everything kind of affects each other. So it's basically looking at the history of the world, but you're starting with the object and you're letting the object guide you through that history. Yeah. That's how I define our history. Okay. okay. Yeah. So what topics and themes do you consider as your specific area of expertise? Yeah. Um, I primarily deal with the art of the black Atlantic and the black Atlantic is a term that refers to arts that came over, I guess, throughout the middle passage and the kind of first disbursement of people from the continent of Africa okay. all over the world by way of the Atlantic. Um, so some people call it the diaspora, Okay, um, but there's several diasporas. Um, yeah that don't necessarily go through the Atlantic. There's African diaspora that comes through the Sahara desert to Europe. Mm -hmm. There's the, you know, the, the trans Sahara slave trade. People don't talk about that. We talk about the transatlantic, but millions and millions of people were brought to their new world of Europe through the desert. Yeah. Um, and also through, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, also being involved in the slave trade and also these things, you know, colonialization comes after that and colonizing. So, yeah, my, my expertise, if you will, if I'm an expert in anything yet, <laughs> I'm still studying. And But my focus, my field is I just deal with what we call black art. Um, and I try my best to always connect what I'm interested in back to the continent itself. And uh, right now, I'm really interested in contemporary works that deal with memory Okay. Um, in regards to the Middle Passage, because I'm interested in how much culture is retained, how much culture is lost, and how culture continues to develop itself, but also echo back to the continent. And then the continent kind of shouts right back at us in the new world. And there's this circle of communication even now. Mm -hmm. um, there's trade of energy, of culture, um, and I'm really interested in that. So that's what I, I typically uh, focus my studies on, and also figurative work. So if you look at Legacy Brothers, even though I, I post a wide range of art, 
they're all figurative representations. Yeah. And what figurative means is uh, there's always a body in there, most likely a face. So I'm interested in portraiture. I'm interested in uh, the black body, but I'm very, very much interested in studies of portraiture, studies of the face, because I feel those were studies that tried to get into what the interior of a person represented. So I'm interested in looking at faces. I'm interested in the stories that those faces tell um, through those portraits. So if you look at um, anything I post, there's always, you're usually going to see a face. I usually don't post a lot of abstract work, yeah. uh, work that doesn't have a figure in it. And um, it's usually something that, that definitely focuses on the face of the person. Is there any um, defining moment that drew you to the type of art that you're interested in? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. There's a couple of moments that drew me into it, um, that drew me into like art history in a very formal way. So I've told you ways in which I was interested in it in my early age and then like in high school and then in college, um, I went to several universities and I would get to like maybe my second or third year and I would drop out. Mm. And, uh, it was terrible for my parents because I wasn't using financial aid. They were paying and I was dropping out of schools. Yeah, it was devastating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm dropping out. Every time I took, you know, so I was an education major. I did try to go to school for fashion design here in Chicago and ended up dropping out of that. And then I studied business and dropped out of that. But every time I studied courses um, at a university, every time I took courses, I took a, an art history course as an elective. And guess what? It would be the only thing I got to in. <laughs> mm. So I took some time off um, and I felt very much like the black sheep of my family. Everyone else very educated and it was a big deal to, you know, finish your BA and get an MA or MBA, then maybe a PhD or whatever the case may be. Um, and, uh, I just started working and, you know, I got a job and like I said, in bank and I was a licensed banker, um, selling investments and all of that stuff, things that I wasn't really interested in truly, but I was just trying to stay afloat and make money and, try to, you know, be, stay a member of society and do things that my age group were doing at the time. I had my place. I was living in the Gold Coast in Chicago. And, you know, I was trying to do everything I could to just kind of stay with the flow of what I thought was expected of me. And then I hated that. And I started working, of all things, because I was good in sales, I started working in retail. Mm-hmm. Um, I got recruited from very famous store, Neiman Marcus, um, very high-end luxury store, recruited me from the bank to come and work for them. One of the people who uh, was a client, a banking client of mine, they said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, they said, you just seem creative. At the time, I had dreadlocks down my back. I had. You know, and there wasn't this bank. I just looked artistic, I guess. And <laughs> the guy who was talking to me happened to be the head of um, HR for Neiman's 
And he said, I think with your personality and things like that, you know, you can, you can get a job here. He didn't even know I had a fashion background and all of that. So that's what I did. I went over there and was selling. I was a personal shopper and selling. I started off selling, you know, small things and then went up to selling women's couture. And then the bottom of the economy fell out when Obama got elected. Um, so this was what, 2008, 2009, when the recession really hit hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my father actually took a really bad turn in his health and, um, he had retired from pastoring and he was also a teacher and all and did other things too, but he retired. His health had gotten really bad. And, um, then I wasn't making any money. I was making so much money uh, on commission, just selling very high-end clothing to selling almost nothing because everyone was holding on to their purse at the time really tight. And uh, my father said, you know, this would be a good time for you to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about it. I want to study art history. But... And he said, yes, that's what you're supposed to study. You've been running from it. You left fashion design. You left the art world, you know, but I think you're going to be, I I know you're going to really do something special with our history. I can feel it. And I thought he was crazy. I've been to so many universities. I bombed out. I was always smart, but I never, nothing could hold my intention. Nothing could hold my interest. Nothing could feed me. So I guess I was very spoiled in a sense that I just would drop out. Um, but also I was very lucky that my parents didn't give up on me and, uh, just kept, you know, sticking with, you know, just kept supporting me anyway. Um, my father, you know, had convinced me to go back to school and I said, okay. And I said, I'm going to get a little part-time job. I'm going to go back to school. I said, but listen, I'm not going to even transfer credits in. I'm going to start over from the beginning. Oh, and yeah, I said, I want to do this right. My father said, okay. And I said, I'm going to get a job. And he said, no, if you get a job, I know you, you'll start making money and you won't finish. Let us do this and let us take care of it. And wow. that's Come on, the court system. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel guilty talking about this because um, I know so many people don't have that. But I want people to know that there's alternatives. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want people to have different stories in their yeah. vocabulary of, yeah. you know, of hearing things and knowing other people's experiences. So uh, I'm not ashamed of the experience. I just feel like um, I understand that so many people don't have that experience. Yeah. Here, I am, here I am talking about a very active father. Um and a lot of people don't have that yeah. and didn't have growing up. But anyway, um, well, actually, to- let me let me stop you right there because I was actually going to say this earlier when we when we yeah. first started, and that is that like seeing, like watching your legacy brother's page and the things that you post that have to yeah. do with your father and your grandfather, and then watching yeah. like my granddaddy's closet, like exactly. seeing that being a kid that didn't grow up with his father. Like it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel envious at all. It actually makes me proud in the same way. It's interesting in, in kind of the same way 
that, you know, the, the, the number one black family show in the world once did. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, it, it, yeah. it, because it's, it's like you have this rich connection to these men that have molded you and helped make you who you are. And right. like, that's dope because I have, you know, I feel like that's what I'm offering to my son now, what I'm able to give my son now because I haven't gotten it. But I'm also picking up these different influences and things like that from other places. So it's like I get to kind of live vicariously through some of the things that you post about your family. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's what I want my son to have. That's what I want him to have. Right. To challenge. My father was the father he was um, to us, because even though he had a father um, figure in his life and he had a father. Uh, he had a very rough and tumultuous relationship with his dad. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to be a lot better. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's how we, we give to future generations. We see what's missing. I think there's two choices. You can see what's missing and kind of get buried in that. Mm-hmm. Or you can see what's missing and try your best to dig deep to supply it. Yeah. For someone else. So that's really why I, I post and I say those things. I, I never wanted it to come off as um, braggadocious or pretentious or anything like that. Um, but it's it's how it was and how it is. And, you know, I was at a point where I was incredibly lost in my life. And um, I was going to work. I wasn't partying. I wasn't drinking and drugging, you know, all those things. Yeah. I wasn't in the streets. I was just going to work and going home. And I felt completely lifeless. Yeah. And when my father said, you know, if you go back to school, I'll pay for it. And my brother was like, yeah, um, I'll step up. And my sister was like, I'll help you. And my mother was like, you know, we all got. And thankfully, I haven't since then, I haven't had to go back to a nine to five. That's beautiful. (laughs) And that was over six years ago. Um, So I decided to go at University of Illinois, Mm -hmm. um, Chicago. Uh, and University of Illinois at Chicago, also known as UIC, they have an amazing art history program, and all of what you call the fundamentals of art history. So you learn all about the Western canon of art, you know, and you don't see any art that particularly looks like you, and you don't see anything uh, that um, if you're if you're you know if you're a person of color, you're you're going to be left hungry. Yeah. more and one you know i was doing well i was you know my writing was going well um and i was it was time for me to study abroad and uh there i was so just to give you a perspective i was 37 going back um basically as at, at 35 at least as a freshman yeah um and luckily, I've always looked younger. So everybody just kind of thought I was one of them. <laughs> and Black so at 37, 37, I got the opportunity to travel and study art. And I was supposed to go to Rome. And that hmm. professor canceled the trip that year. And the study abroad officer or um, the, the, the manager of study abroad said, the, the director rather said, hey, how edgy are you? And I said, edgy? I'm, I'm pretty edgy. He said, cool, why don't you go to Ghana? 
West Africa. <laughs> go to Ghana. And I said, what? Go where? Ghana who? Like, and though my, you know, my parents had kind of raised us to be completely aware of our African ancestry, anything that came on PBS, we were watching it. Any, you know, we picked up books and we knew things. I knew cultural attributes of different places within the continent of Africa. I knew how I was a black person in America and how that came to be. I knew all of that history, but the stigma of being black, the stigma of being associated with the continent of Africa was still there. And uh, I was like, man, I, I want to go to I want to go to Europe. I'm not going to Africa. So I came home to my parents' house that weekend, and I told my dad about it. And he said, "They want you to go where? Ghana? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going. Oh, nice. And I was like, no, I'm supposed to. I want to go to Rome. I'm going to wait till next year. He said, no, you're going to go. And I said, Dad, plus you're so sick. My father got so sick at that time. I said, you're so sick. He said, listen, we can do the FaceTime. We can, uh, you need to go. You need to see the places where we came from. You need to have this cultural experience. You're more mature. This is going to be wonderful for you. So I thought about it for a couple of days and I decided to go. I went back to the study abroad office and I said, hey, I'm going to go to Ghana. And the guy said, oh, well, you have to write a two page essay in the next hour, if you want to get the full scholarship that ends at five o'clock today. Oh, wow. <laughs> he said, what took you so long to say yes, man? Because it was a good two weeks. <laughs> oh, wow. And I, so I ran, I wrote a two-page essay within an hour, and I got a scholarship. And uh, I went to Ghana to, in an arts and cultural transformation program for four months. And that changed my complete worldview, and it com- it changed my idea of what art was. I stopped looking at art only through a European lens. I stopped looking at art from a European validation. I started looking at us as inventors, as innovators, and the originators, instead of those who are dependent on someone else to give us something. Yeah. Mm. And that changed everything. So I came back radicalized. Um, the next semester, I mean, I had all kind of prints on, like African prints. <laughs> I had beads. <laughs> I'm walking into class, and we had a guest lecturer who was someone who, a woman who, who deals specifically with Black contemporary art. And she was a young professor, um, and she was teaching a class that semester. from. Um, she was coming from UC, uh, University of uh, California, Davis. And um, I linked up with her and told her about my experience. And she really kind of walked me into the whole world of black art. Mm. And I also have to say, um, I have a mentor there, and I want to say her name, um, Hannah Higgins, who from my freshman year, she's a white woman who is the the, uh, daughter of a very prominent white artist, both parents are artists, but her father, Dick Higgins, was the most um, well-known um, performance artist in the realm of this art called Fluxus. But anyway, she's a big deal. If you mention her name in certain realms, people will bow down. And she kind of sought me out. And she said, tell me your story. What are you doing here? You know, you, you know you're know, you a black guy studying art history. Um, 
you're in your 30s. What's the deal? And she was doing that to provoke me to talk about myself. And I told her my story. And she made it her business to kind of be my mentor and uh, my caretaker. And any Black artist that she knew about, she would bring them up in a conversation um, in a class. So it could be on the contemporary art of the 1970s or the 1960s. Typically in those classes, they don't talk about Black artists. But with me sitting there, she knew she had to pull out a different uh, conversation and, and include different artists. So she really was my first link to a world that there's, you know, there's another discourse out there. There's another conversation um, that's included with the mainstream Western conversation. And then it also counters it. It disrupts it. It's different. And I owe everything to her. And to this day, uh, she's my biggest cheerleader, biggest supporter and my biggest ally. So I just always have to say her name. Yeah. I hope I answered your question. You did. <laughs> you answered a few questions. No, no, no. No, um, you're, you're good. So, following up on what you said, I and I, I have this conversation with Mark all the time. But I want to ask you for your opinion. Why? Which? Why do you think Black art and Black art history isn't properly represented and celebrated throughout? I don't want to say the art world in general, but yeah, the art world. Uh, there are a few reasons, reasons that uh, we have to be honest about. Um, so art in the way that it's practiced in the Western world, which is the majority of the art world. And I say Western, you know, I'm, I'm referring to Europe and, of course, the United States, first world countries, right? Mm -hmm. um, that comes from a tradition of art making that dates way back um, to medieval times, even before then. And there's just been a lot of time and a lot of, um, just a lot of training and a lot of understanding of art through that particular lens. That when you think of blacks in the new world, we didn't start having access to create that type of art until uh, the 19th century, because before then we were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And some of us were artisans even while enslaved, like Dave the Potter was a famous um, potter who was enslaved in making pottery. And then, of course, making furniture and making all kinds of things that go into the, what they call the craft and ornamental type of ornamental types of art objects. But things like painting and and sculpture in the sense that we think of it in the New World, in the United States, in the Caribbean. That wasn't something that we had access to. Yeah. So we're thinking about something that's relatively new for us. Think about it. What, what slavery is over in 1865? Mm -hmm. And if the last thing you want to do is paint your first art show in 1865. You want to maybe build <laughs> us, yeah. send your kids to school, learn how to read, um, think about hopefully getting 40 acres and a mule. You know, there's other things on your mind. You have to dodge the Klan, Jim Crow, yeah. civil rights, segregation. You know, there's always these things that have kind of kept us from this place of leisure, which is with what art, leisure and privilege, which is what art was associated with. It was a gentleman's task. You know, it was a well-cultured task. Even if you were poor, if you were a poor European artist, you know, if you were really good, soon you got these commissions from the church 
and you started making a name for yourself. You became a celebrity. You're a rock star. You know, there was no way we could access that and still be considered a lesser human. And it was important for us to be considered less human or even animal in order for slavery to work. Mm-hmm. They had to build they had to build a whole economy off of us. Yeah. You don't build you don't put people in labor who are gonna be painters. Yeah. We're going to be fine sculptors. No, no, no. Only thing you're going to be sculpting is something that I can use to sit myself in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we're behind in that sense. And then um, I think that's really where it starts from. It, it, it's an uneven playing field. Yeah. That I think we're always trying to catch up with. Not technically and not skill wise. We can do anything else. But how you're considered. You know, we're still fighting for 100% citizenship. Now, we're citizens on the books, right? But we're not treated the same way no, as no, our white no. counterparts yeah. as a first-class citizen. Yeah. So I think that's why these conversations that I think black, the black image, people of color, brown people as well, even women um, have been kind of separated from this conversation and we've all had to fight to be in it. Yeah. I mean, I think like formally, absolutely. Like I, I, like absolutely. I I always think about this though, like kind of the balance between like how far back black art goes and things like that. Right. Because if we're talking about formal gallery shows and things like that, absolutely. Like, we we are we are late to the to the party, right? But when we right. start thinking about artisanry and and craftsmanship, <laughs> we're the originators, you know. <laughs> and, to change our terms, so listen yeah. to what you have. Which you're absolutely right. You said formal, right? Yeah. And gallery, and then you said, but to craftsmanship and artisan. Yeah. But those in the African concept were also formal. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. But we have to change our language to even talk about work that originates with us. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? So yeah. that shows the the, the, the problem. Um, you and, got me. Uh, you got me yeah, there. The, you got me like there. I, I need to use the word handicraft because I know that's how they segment, you know, that's how the, the work is segmented. But yeah. Yeah, those textiles use the technology and the line of thought, and the methodology to be created. That's far more advanced than even some of these Renaissance paintings from Europe. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Like the <laughs> bronze work from Benin. You there know, you go. Like, oh my God! Like, it's amazing, and they've been using that for ever. <laughs> like, it, it's difficult for them to date a lot of things because they can't really figure out exactly how far back it goes. Like, exactly. That's exactly. amazing. And that shows, you know, the brilliance of technology and science from the continent of Africa, in addition to art being paired with that, which, you know, when you start thinking about those things and when they came into play into Western art, into the Western art world, like pales in comparison, like they like, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, no, I man. All right. I told you, man, the, 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 the art history class I've always wanted to take. I, I was been, like, Danny, where were you? Funny. And I needed an AP art history. And I was like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> you're dead out. You're dead out. Oh. Absolutely. I think you should ever discount self-learning. Um, 
I had to teach, I had to kind of create a program for myself because they didn't have a focus or emphasis, again, in black art. Yeah. Even at the wonderful institution of UIC, I literally made a program. Yeah. I took all the African-American studies classes I could take. I took all of the even African courses I could take, courses on social movements, courses on feminism, courses on philosophy, and then also pure, what they would just call pure art history. And I had to combine it for myself. So when other people were studying abroad in Italy um, or or France, I was studying abroad in Africa. And so I went from West Africa and then I did a final study abroad for six months in in Morocco, in North Africa, where my ideas of blackness and my ideas of Africa really, really expanded. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so... Was that the... Was that the trip that you took last year? I'm sorry, say that again. Was that, was that the trip you took last year or no, was that 2016? So I had that transformative experience. I learned about so many different types of arts from the visual to, to the performing arts. Yeah. And it changed everything. I continue to study. And uh, my last year in undergrad, I... Uh, had realized I did not take a foreign language mm. and I was supposed to have four semesters of it. Okay. So, and I, dro- I did my old thing. Like I, re- I dropped out of all of my French classes. I would take one every <laughs> semester and drop out. Yeah. <laughs> so they had an Arabic class that allowed you to take two oh, nice. semesters at one in one. So I said, okay, if I take this Arabic class, I would have halfway caught up. And I basically took all the other courses I could take. So my last semester, they said, you know, you can just take Arabic and study North African art in Morocco and you'll have completed all of your language requirements. Wow. So that's, and I said, oh, wow, I get to go back to the continent. Yeah. So that was in 2016. And then while I was in 20, while I was in Morocco in 2016, I received the letter from the Fulbright Council saying that I had been approved for the Fulbright scholarship that was going to send me back to Ghana for a year. <laughs> and we we will definitely get back to that because yes. we want to <laughs> we want to let you like when we start talking about Ghana and your curation yes. expense you know experience, we gonna let you we gonna let you open up about that because you were all over the continent when you went back. Yeah, I was <laughs> because you yeah. met my brothers in South in Africa. South Africa, so. <laughs> So we're definitely going to come back to that. But um, let me ask you, do you think as a black art historian, you have the responsibility to preserve and share the narrative of black art? I think we can kind of extrapolate the answer from (laughs) from the conversation. But, you know, the choice, I don't think because I'm black, I have to take on that responsibility. Yeah, I it's because I love being black. Hmm. And I love black people. And I've had this, I think I've had the fortunate environment to kind of foster love in a way that a lot of black people have not had a chance to love themselves. Yeah. (laughs) And I think loving yourself oftentimes comes first by being able to see yourself. Yeah. And if you're seeing yourself always in a negative light, in a negative way. It's very hard for you to have an appreciation for yourself. So I feel like I've been blessed with opportunities to see 
ourselves in many different ways, the very least thing I could do is share it. I feel like we're uh, at art church right now. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's, it's the least I can do. It's because it's, it's no good if I'm saying I'm black and I'm proud and I'm and I'm this and I'm that. Yeah. Um. And my my brother or sister of African descent doesn't is not able to hold their head up the same way. Yeah. Because I'm no good by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not meant to live alone. No. Nah. Uh-huh. Nah. And I kind of feel like if we're going to unify. If we're going to come together in any way, we have to come together first with loving ourselves. It's yeah. really difficult to shoot somebody down when you love them. Yeah. It's it difficult to talk about somebody <laughs> behind their back when you love them. It's also difficult for you to mistreat yourself when you really love yourself. Yeah. So I always tell people if there's one thing I have to do, if one calling that's on my life is to get black people to love themselves. And that starts with me, you know, loving myself more and more every day. It's a learning process. It's an unlearning. It's a violent unlearning of situations and institutional, systemized methods of telling you to hate yourself Yeah. from birth. So we have a constant relearning, rethinking, reteaching, regrouping, and healing to do in order to truly love ourselves. So that's that's the reason why I find it important to to teach art history from the lens of blackness. Yeah. Um, not just because I'm black, it's because I love being black. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, uh, it, it reminds me of a quote from our conversation with, <clears throat> excuse me, with my older brother, Anthony. And he, he said, which I've, I've always believed, but it was good to hear somebody else say it, you know, cause we always talk about need, right. And necessity. And how strong that that pull for a need and a necessity is. But a want, a love, a desire, like that's stronger than a need. When you think about that, when you think about how far you're willing to go out of your way for something that you want, like, (laughs) you know, so to hear you talk about, you know, it's it's something that you choose to do because you love being black because you 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 want to share these things like that's going to propel you know the the your mission even more because you have this strong desire so yeah, yeah i'm with that <laughs> i'm with yeah. that <laughs> i appreciate that so much no nah. it's definitely not easy some days oh no it's any not. artist <laughs> will tell you road is rough and it's hard and yeah, the struggle is real, so um, real. but that's what keeps <laughs> that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me interested, and yeah, that's yeah. that's it. So, how how do you think we go about, or we we should, or can go about accomplishing um, the incorporation of more Black art history into traditional art history studies, or? More black Ooh. black art history and black art into traditional art studies in general. Yeah, it's lacking. Uh, <laughs> I think art, black art, at this point is becoming very prolific. This people are producing it mass mm-hmm. speeds, mass. I'm like in mass numbers and high speeds. There's yeah. so much art that's out there. That's one thing. Produce and good quality. Then <laughs> the quality. That's right. Send it out there. Create it. Study. You know, develop your hand, develop your movement, whatever yeah. it is that 
doing your practice to make it the most excellent object or performance as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's a few things that have to happen. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have complained, and this might be a, co- a question that you're going to ask later, so I'm going to merge it all in there. A lot of people are complaining about the lack of black representation in museums, mm-hmm. uh, museum staff, such as curators oh. and, uh, <laughs> or art historians. There's, there's not a lot of art historians um, who are of color, um, who are black. Um, and it's because, again, the system was set up in such a way that I really feel that we had so much, we had so many other things to take care of. Yeah. At least we felt that way. Um, if I'm, you know, if I grew up in poverty and I got a chance to go to college and my first job, if I was going to go into the art world, is going to pay me something like 26000 a year. But if I decide to study business, it's going to pay me 80000 a year. Yeah. I'm going to choose business. Not so much that I love business and hate art. It's just that my situation has me in a way that I really have to choose that economic uplift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of these jobs pay very, very small amounts. And it's really interesting. So you hear so many people say, oh, I'm a curator. I'm a curator. And uh, it's become a buzzword. It is. Um, it has become a lot- are great independent curators like myself. I've I've curated independently, but um, curators have never made a lot of money. No, They just happen to look really glamorous and look really fabulous because typically they came from wealthy families Uh or they came from some type of reserved amount of wealth that allowed them to do what they did. Well, there's been, there's been a few articles written over the last couple of years about about that very thing, that very topic about the whitewashing of the art world, because the only people that can afford to work in the art world are rich white kids. Generally. Exactly. So listen to me, who gets the chance at 35 to go back to school, man, to have their parents pay for it. Yeah. To be completely supported. That is out of this world, you know, kind of blessing and, and, and opportunity to have. So that's why I take it on myself. I feel like I do have an obligation. Um, uh, my father passed away the year after I came back from Ghana mm-hmm. and he got to see my first article published in a, in a magazine. He got to see me win scholarship after scholarship. That's beautiful. He, to see me, you know, he and he said, you know, you are going to, he was so proud of the achievements that I was making and he was pushing me, you know, probably because he knew he didn't have that much time left yeah. um, because it's all about what you're leaving behind. So I think we're at a place economically where some of our children, like your son, may be able to pursue Art, like the academic side of art world and still have a support behind them. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to give ourselves a little bit more. We have to understand the situation and the, the economic history, the social history that goes beyond behind our choosings Yeah, of what we decided to study and what we decided to get into. But now people like us have a charge to put out 
knowledge to put out mm-hmm. books. Yeah. To curate more exhibitions. As you can see, they're coming. You know, there's yeah. more museums being built. There's more galleries being yeah. built. There's more art centers. I mean, Instagram alone, you you can spend the whole day looking at new art initiatives. Yeah. All over the country. And then, and then that's just starting with the United States. Yeah. All over the country, black people are all over the world, I'm sorry, black people are lifting up visual arts and performing arts mm-hmm. in, in a way that they haven't done before. Yeah. And we're echoing back to each other. What's going on in South Africa is what's going on in Brooklyn. What's going on in Brooklyn is what's going on, to, going on in Paris. What's going on in Paris is what's going on in Ghana, in Accra. So there's the, the conversations are going, and then the institutions are being built. Yeah. We just have to wait a little bit. We're a little antsy because the art's out there. Yeah, no, it is, and but so the scholars are coming. Uh huh. They are. You know, everybody's incubating. Yeah, and we just have to stay on that on that path. Yeah, I have a lot of hope for the future of us. You know, we're we are intervening right now. We're disrupting right now. We're cutting through. We are a very broad white line. We are, and we're cutting through it. And it takes time. It takes patience. And it's hard to have that patience when you know your worth and you know your value and you know everybody stole from you and you know, yeah. <laughs> but you still have to have that patience yeah. to, mm-hmm. to build, to build your future. And I think that's where we're going to go with it. Yeah. I mean, touching on something that you said earlier about the, the conversation being had metaphorically, of course, uh, through the artwork. Um, you can definitely see that in the work from all those places that you named, especially on yeah. Instagram, right? Because if you look yeah. up contemporary African art, you're going to get work from Ghana. You're going to get work from Kenya. You're going to get work from uh, Tanzania. You're going to get work from South Africa. You're going to get work from Egypt. And there are things that are so vastly different, but you can yeah. see it's kind of like it's like those cousins, right? Like you can tell that they're, you can tell that they're related. But they look different. But they both right. look damn good. Like it's- <laughs> that's what I, I, I always tell people um, because I think we're also at this. We're also at a time when we're grappling with our identity as Black people in the West. Man, um, yeah. you know, it's really tough because you know there's been rifts between African Americans and Africans, Caribbean. And, you know, who's this, who's that, yeah. you know, um, and we all have to start thinking of Africa as in the way that I think of it. I think of when I go to Ghana, um, I think of that I'm going to my grandmother's house. Hmm. Now, that's important because I don't know. I, I'll tell you the way it was when I went to my grandmother's house. I loved it. It always smelled a little funny. There were mothballs. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird smell of fried chicken and mothballs and a hint of greens. <laughs> that is the real, like you haven't even finished that thought, but that is the you know, realest. Oh on my the day, God. You know, you couldn't really, I couldn't sit on my grandmother's furniture like I wanted to. She would make me a little a little uh, mat on the floor. She's like, no, you sit here. You can sit on my good furniture. I don't know. You've been playing outside. I had to do work at my grandmother's house. She had this enormous garden in the backyard. Whenever I came to visit, there was a list of stuff to do. Yeah. Um, and I would come and stay, and 
also my grandmother let me get away with stuff my, my parents wouldn't let me get away with. Yeah. Uh-huh. She might chastise me over some things that my parents would have not cared about. And then she might let me get away with some things that my parents would have had to reprimand me about. It was different. And then, you know, it's grandma's house. So you get some of them badass cousins that you don't even like. <laughs> I get thrown over there to hang out with you. Now I got to see down. Yeah. And, yeah. And hang out with them. But at the end of the day, we're all under that roof. We all know we're related. We know we're connected. We are all very different, but we all come from this one woman. Yeah. This one place. And if you stay there long enough, that moth ball smell, you just really get used to it. Yeah. And you start to under you like her cooking maybe even more than your mother's cooking because you know it kind of your mother's came from her yeah and all of those things and at the end of the day though as much as you might even learn to like it you have to go home yeah because that's where your parents are mm-hmm. that's where you have another you have another life and you have other things to do and other things to develop but you're always welcome to go back to your mm-hmm. grandmother's house. And that's how I look at the continent of Africa. Um, it is, it's our origin and there's so many connections there that might seem with that strangeness lessens after a while. And you just realize, Oh my God, we're really so related. Yeah. We're not even distant cousins. Some of yeah. us after we grew up, it's really once some of those topical things, the surface things collapse. The root of it, the soul of it, it's so much, it's almost identical. And you're like, okay, okay. But we have to go through those processes. So I always encourage people from both sides, actually, because I've lived in the middle of of being around Africans who've never been around diasporians and then diasporians who've never been around Africans. Yeah. And I think it's a cross-cultural exchange that's really not even that cross-cultural. It's a a unification that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That um, we... It's a loss of memory that we we begin to remember in a very spiritual way once we're over there, and they need, they begin to remember what was lost of them. Yeah, which is very important. We weren't uh-huh. the only, you know. It happened to. It was something that happened to us, and it also happened to our origin. Yeah. So. Um. Let's just digest that for a second, though. I know. I was like, I want to process it, but I don't want there to be an awkward lag. Yeah. Because I definitely had nothing to say. I was just like, damn. All right. Now, Mark, we're going to have to go to Chicago and and have, like, lunch with Danny. Uh, I love Chicago. Uh, I wish I would have. I wish I would have met Danny when I was living in Chicago. (laughs) I've never been, so I will be. Yeah. Have a, let's go for the taste. Up. Let's go for the taste. Let's do that. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> oh yeah, because it's, it's, it's about to be cold there. So yeah, we'll see you in the summer. Exactly. <laughs> you got to pull out couch. In fact, I'm going to head over to Texas. Or man, come on. Could you imagine? So I was in. I said I was in Morocco for six months, and then that fall, I came back home to Chicago during the spring and summer. That fall, I left for Ghana, and I didn't come back until the next. Um, at the end of the following summer. So that had been two years of no winter. Wow. To come back 
to the coldest winter ever of Chicago day. Oh, God. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. That's the winter that I moved to Chicago. Oh, my that 2013-14 winter when it hit negative oh, 40. A, oh, that one was a rough one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that Ooh, was rough. Man, that negative 40 was... Mm-mm. <laughs> See, all of the, I'm, I'm frowning up so hard right now because none of that sounds appealing. All the videos people were putting on Instagram and Facebook in the Midwest, like throwing boiling water out and watching just turn the steam. Man... Wasn't nothing appealing about that to me. Mm-mm. I'm trying my best to because I've gotten, and I was somebody who didn't like hot weather. I've always liked it to be a little cooler, you know. Oh. Spending a couple of, you know, a year or so at my grandmother's house, now I want it hot. <laughs> uh, we <laughs> have it. <laughs> we have Man. it in Houston if you want to come through. <laughs> Man. Take some of it back home with you. Like. <laughs> <laughs> So Danny, I want to I want to change gears just a little bit and talk about your profession as an art as a writer and yeah. your art writing. Um, yeah. First and foremost, can you kind of describe what you would classify your writing style as? Um, my writing style style is very lyrical, um, or some people would say poetic. Um, at the very least, someone would just say it's wordy. <laughs> uh, very much like the way I'm speaking, um, which comes from a very comes from an oral tradition, uh-huh. um, and I've learned to be very proud of that. That's something that's been passed down. Okay, so I hope you realize that every time I have an answer, it's going to come back to some history of blackness, right? Oh no, but I appreciate it. Who's okay, mad right. at that? Who is so, mad at that? Know, I, <laughs> The way I write is the way um, stories were told to me. And with my father being this great speaker, and he was a great writer and an orator, um, I kind of write in the way that I would like to hear someone speak to me. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only way I can stay focused. Is if, if I'm reading something and if I don't hear the voice coming through, if I don't hear like someone's talking to me like you're talking to me now and I'm talking to you guys, then I lose interest. So I try to talk about art in a way that it would be an interesting conversation. Um, using words, hopefully that people don't have to look up yeah. so much, you know, or so, <laughs> that aren't so dense and so abstract. I kind of feel like that, right? There's a place for writing like that. Um, especially in the academy. I appreciate it and I respect it. Uh, sometimes I'm jealous of it because I can't write at that level yet. Of complexity, but also I realize it's not always necessary. And for people who are coming to the art world and coming into the interest of arts, they just want to know a little bit about what they're seeing. Yeah. And you know, we talk about access denied. The best way to allow access is to welcome someone with your words, to welcome them into a world, to tell them a story. That's how we learned about the world mm-hmm. as little kids. That and your, your your dad, your mom's, whoever's lap, they told you a story. So that's what I like to do. I like to talk about very complex and intricate topics, but hopefully simplify them in a way that it comes off as storytelling and um, makes it interesting for for the reader. Because that's the way I can stay focused. So you would you say you don't have to be well versed in art history and culture to understand your writing? Um, so 
it's hard because I think if you're right, if you're writing art, if you're writing about art, you kind of think about your audience, your audience, and your audience usually is comprised of a lot of your peers, fellow academics, fellow art writers, fellow art cognoscentes, you know, people who really know about art. So you have this, there's a part of the ego that says you need to impress them. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, my mother's a very intelligent, educated woman. If she reads an essay of mine and doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about, I feel like I failed. Mm-hmm. And there have been times when she was like, I don't get this, I don't get that. And I take it back and I, I rewrite it. And so she's like my, my litmus test. Uh, she's the test. Um, she, cause she just reads articles in newspapers and magazines all the time. And she said, you know, I want you to write like at the magazine level, at the, the writing level of a newspaper article where a lay person can read it and understand someone who's not necessarily involved in the world. So it depends on what I'm writing for. If I'm writing for an art journal or something like that, sure, it's going to be filled with a lot of art historical terms. Um, some might call jargon and things like that. But if it's something like a gallery essay, uh, um, exhibition essay where the general public is going to be invited and people who want to learn more about a certain artist, I think you should have, you should make the words accessible because sometimes, uh, the literature becomes a gatekeeping device as well. Yeah. Oh. Ain't that the truth? Because that's what I was about dumbing down. I don't think I don't think we sh- anyone should dumb down because I think there's you know when I first started reading art history books and and texts, I had to I had to have a dictionary next to me because there would be words that I didn't know, and that's okay um, to challenge yourself and to to elevate yourself. But I think conceptually. You should you should write conceptually in a way that people a broad amount of people can understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking about the 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 literary barriers to art and art history when you were talking about the technical writing that occurs in academia, um, because some things just they don't like. It's just not necessary all the time, right? Like, right. You know, to to put it in a colloquialism, ain't no need to use a fifty dollar word when a one dollar word will do. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but but it happens so often, and I think that is part of the stratification. I think it's part of you know if there is a grant. Well, okay, let me let me stop being nice. I think it's part of the plan, right? The stratification plan of art. I was about to be real nice and pull that punch, but like, let's just be real. Like, there is a stratification plan. Sure. Um, you know, so. But also, a lot of it, I think you have to, it's a little bit more complex because a lot of it just comes from the ego of the writer. Oh, yeah. Hubris plays a big part. I went through a PhD <laughs> program and all these other PhDs are going to, I have to impress them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and my father, so I told you my father was a pastor. My father was a, a preacher. And. My father was very educated, had his master's in theology, and um, he also taught um, junior high school, and he did all that. And he would preach to a very um, stratified layer, layers of classes in a congregation, those who had as much or more education than he did, 
and those who are just maybe working class people with an eighth grade education. And his mentor always told him, make it plain. Yeah. Yeah. So when things got too abstract, when things got too, you know, when he was feeling himself and was trying to impress his colleagues, they were like, oh, you got to make it plain. So yeah. I think a lot of that comes from my father. And I would remember how even if he said something that may have been a complicated concept, he would then break it down in everyday terms. And what would people do? They would learn the breakdown, and then they would start saying the complicated words that he used because they would uh-huh. have Yeah. So you teach something, you explain it, and you teach. Explain and you teach. I think that's what good writing does. Yeah. Well, Is I, that educational? Yeah. I think, well, not I think. I know because it was, you know, kind of my idea. But that's where the idea for arts explanatory comma came from, right? Like I'm a person, I'm a very plain speaking person. Like (laughs) I just really am because I understand that in, in order for a broader audience to understand you, sometimes you're going to have to make concessions, right? Mm -hmm. And then bring them up with you. Just like you said, your father did. Correct. So, so with that, I'm like, people are interested in art. Well, let me back up because the way that I teach and I've told all the administrators on my campus, I don't teach art. I teach interest in art because if you don't, if you don't have the interest, you're not going to put forth the effort to get better at making artwork. You're not going to explore. You're not going to push yourself. Right. But if I can get you interested in it, then you'll be ready. Right. So even when I teach abstraction to my students, I use uh, Mondrian's abstraction of a cow. Right. Right. Like for those that don't know, it is a it's it's four images that are paired together that are all pieces of Piet Mondrian's um, process of abstracting or creating an abstract painting of a cow. The first is realistic. The second is basic shapes. The third is basic shapes with color. And the fourth is a completely abstracted idea of a cow. Right. And even the word abstract is kind of confusing for a lot of people. It really just means you're creating a visual image of the idea of something as opposed to the figurative representation of something, right? It's the breakdown. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So when I'm teaching that, I'm showing them images that also show that same process, right? But I'm showing them stuff that I think that will pull them in. So instead of showing them Picasso, because everybody's like, yo, Picasso's crazy. I'll show them Wilfredo lamb. Mm. Right. Cause lamb, like they're figurative, but they definitely are abstracted images. And in the same breath, I get to teach, Hey, these are abstracted images, not abstract images. Right. right? So then the interest is there because Wilfredo lamb's work is very interesting. And you know, when you learn a little bit about his context, um, of, of who he is, where he was born, where he was raised, who his parents were, then that interest creeps in. Right. So I always try to grab the interest first before I go to, okay, you need to learn this technique. So I I think that's kind of the approach to, to arts explanatory comma. It's like, Hey, let's talk about this stuff. Let's explain what it is as we go along so that people can actually follow and we're not getting too heavy into certain things now there are times that we're going to geek out absolutely 
And I, I think, I think you've done a great job of, you know, doing both, right? Like you've tackled some heavy subject matter. You've tackled some heavy subject matter, but in a way that like, it's, it's intriguing me. And I have a minor in art history. I've read a lot of the crazy stuff. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, and, and it's intrigued me and made me think about things a little bit differently, but I'm sure Raquel, who doesn't have a traditional education in art, like I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm positive Raquel has been intrigued and learned something and has become more interested, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm, I'm trying to contain it for the, the benefit of the podcast, but I'm over here standing and getting my life. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm so happy. And I mean, I think every episode that we've done so far in one way or another has kind of refueled our interest. And this is even pushing, I know it's pushing me further. Um, and I yeah. appreciate that. And we still got, yeah, I, we still got I, more I, to go. Because <laughs> I, I if I can interject, with congratulations to you both for and a, and a hearty thank you for creating this this platform. Um, there are a lot of podcasts out there, but I think you all have really come with a great angle. Um, you developed a wonderful um, platform for people to bring their point of views, and you, you've been asking some amazing questions and I, I just want to say congratulations and I'm wishing you all the best with this project. It's fantastic. Oh Danny, don't make me cry. I <laughs> don't be a hypocrite because on a former episode I told Mark and our guest that I am not a crier. I am not. <laughs> I I am and I mean I think for me like those words like first of all, thank you. And yes. right back at you, man. We appreciate you, you know, doing this. We appreciate everyone that's agreed to sit down and talk with us and take time out of their day to do this. Um, but also, man, thank you for creating Legacy Brothers. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I've said that yet, but thank you for creating Legacy Brothers uh, because. Legacy Brothers, I, I don't know if this is the next question you have, but. Go for it. <laughs> because everyone always asks me, how did I come up with it? So a few things. I was new to Instagram. This was about six years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, the Legacy Brothers is actually a company mm. um, between my brother and I. So I have a younger brother who's actually like the older brother because he always has his shit together. I don't. <laughs> like, you know, I gave you my whole story. He had his stuff done. He was, you know, he's always there. Yeah. And he's also my biggest supporter and um, my biggest fan and my best friend, like truly my best friend. So we decided to kind of come up together, come together and do a business. There is actually going to be a line, a product line, where we're designing different products, um, accessories for the home and um, home and for the body. And we came up with the name Legacy Brothers because we're the legacy of our parents. And we were always interested in the legacy that one leaves behind. And this all happened around the time when I was at, at UIC studying art history. So my classmates were like, oh, you got to get on Instagram. It's all the rage. You know, Instagram, Instagram. This was like in 2011, 2012. 
So I get on Instagram and I decide to name it Legacy Brothers or the abbreviation Legacy Bros because I wanted to hold it as a placeholder just in case I started creating my clothing line. Yeah. And as I started learning more and more art, so it started off as selfies, selfies, <laughs> apartment. So, you know, the it started off as an Instagram. Like, <laughs> oh, look at me. I got some cheesecake. I want to take a picture. Of it. <laughs> oh, I found a leaf on the ground in the tip of my shoe. <laughs> that happens to be a Gucci shoe. Let me take a photo of that or. Let me, you know, the type of stuff that people post on Instagram. You know, I did all of that. And then it changed uh, when I started learning more. I went to, so it changed when I started learning more about black arts, um, black artists. And every time I learned something, I put it on Instagram. So a lot of the artists, when I started off, they were new to me too. That's why I always say, you know, I never want to, put someone down who doesn't know because at some point I didn't know either. Mm-hmm. It yeah. would be really ridiculous of me to sit down and judge someone because, you know, at some point I didn't know. And whenever that point changes, it happens for different people at different times. Everyone's journey is different, but you yeah. have responsibility to, to share what you know. So I started posting stuff on Instagram every time I learned something, every time I learned about a new movement. Oh, the Black Arts Movement of Chicago. Okay. Black artists doing um, Harlem Renaissance. Okay. Um, European European paintings of Moors during the 1700s. Okay, let me post it. So I started posting all of that and after a while I started to recede in the background. That's the less posts of me and selfies about me and I just started putting out art and uh, that's how Legacy Brothers started. That's where the name originally from. By the way, there still is a um, product line in the midst, in, in the making, but it's very much inspired by the art that um, I post on the page. My brother very much, he's a lay person, as you say, but he's, <laughs> he's also very much, since I've been doing this, his, his eyes have opened so much to um, the black image within art um, that he's become an enthusiast and so from Legacy Brothers um, it's Legacy Brothers LLC it is a registered name, it is an actual business where um, I write under that name under that publication where we want to do publications we want to do mm. art advising um, and also we have a product that's going to be coming out hopefully next year going to be amazing so it all ties back together so that's yeah. where the name every at least gosh, at least once a month someone asks me where the name legacy brothers comes from and where why did i start doing it doing it on instagram i started basically posting what i was learning yeah and i had no idea that it was going to take off i had no intention of it taking off and I'm really grateful that it has. I really appreciate it. But at the end of the day, it's still a personal page. So yeah. you still might get a selfie every now and then. <laughs> every now and then. I'm like, hey, yeah. your MCM or something. I don't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> Just tell them who it is. I found out that it was important because there was a long time before I was I, I stopped putting my face on the page at all. 
And then I started to incorporate it because I realized, as I said earlier, that I wanted, there's a lot of, art has always been, black art has always been curated and kept behind white gatekeepers mm-hmm. for, for, for centuries. Yeah. There's a reason why Picasso had access to African masks before mm-hmm. someone who was Afri- of African descent had access to that. Yep. White people of the United States could go to Kenya, could go to Ghana, could go to any place they wanted to in the 19th century if they wanted to and visit as a colonizer. Meanwhile, we were in children of those people in chains over here. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about the history of denial of access. So I wanted people to know, hey, I'm showing you this art. I'm curating this art. I'm researching this art. But most importantly, I am this art. I am a product Mm. of these people. Mm -hmm. Look at me. I'm everything I'm posting about. I represented myself. Say it again, Pastor. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) I mean, I love that. Like, I am this art. Like, like, yeah. 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 (laughs) Man. All right. Yo, I know, I know, I know we just annoyed all of you with that hard stop. I'm sorry. There was actually so much dope content. Couldn't really figure out a better place to stop it. So I just stopped it there. But I promise you next week's part two will not disappoint. Okay. So come back next week for part two of our conversation with Danny Dunton. All right. In the meantime, give him a follow. Go to Instagram. Type into your search bar. Legacy Bros. L-E-G-A-C-Y-B-R-O-S. Legacy Bros. Click that little blue button. Give him that follow. Also, don't forget, please, please, please don't forget. Visit our Instagram page. Arts Explanatory Comma. Spelled out just the way it sounds. Arts Explanatory Comma. All right. Danny will actually be taking over our page this week. So all the posts that you see this week will be coming directly from the man of legacy bros, Danny Dunson. All right. So check out our page, follow legacy brothers page as well. Legacy bros. And then come back next week, wherever you get your fine, beautiful, wonderful, great podcast and listen to part two of our conversation with Danny Dunson. I promise you it will not disappoint. I promise you that. All right. We'll see y'all next week. Hopefully. Thank y'all for listening this week. Thank you for listening every time that you listen before. If this was your first time listening, welcome to the family. Please continue to listen. Keep up with us. Check us out. Hopefully we can make you proud. All right. Cool. Now, on behalf of myself and Raquel Simone, peace. And again, thank you for listening.